This is Tom Lee, the Editor-in-Chief of NAGM Catalyst, and today we're talking with John Perlin, President of Clinical Services and Chief Medical Officer of HCA Healthcare. John is one of the real good guys in healthcare, I think. He has experience working relentlessly to improve quality and safety in two of the biggest systems in U.S. healthcare. Currently, HCA Healthcare with 185 hospitals, last time I counted, and more than 1,000 outpatient facilities. And before that, back when I met him, he was Undersecretary of Health at the Veterans Hospital Administration, which has about 2,000 sites here. Now, I think many of us can remember that New England Journal article from 2003 that John wrote showing that quality for many metrics was actually better at the VA for fee for, than Medicare fee-for-service patients were getting. John went from the VA to HCA in 2006, another, another enormous system, and I can tell you that he needs this wonderful combination of optimism and realism. And he has, over the years and, and decades, really, seen his organizations really move the needle and really get better. So today, he's going to share with us some lessons that he's learned about how to approach long-term change for the better on enormous scale. How do we get better at scale? So, John, before we plunge in, give a few minutes to our readers about you and your background. Like, What led to you showing up at the VA? Well, Tom... First, thank you very much for that uh, very generous introduction and um, even more for your uh, exceptional leadership uh, in quality. I know that we share a bond uh, to accelerate learning and improvement. Um, so congratulations on Catalyst. Its practicality and its timeliness are, are really key to um, uh, improvement. Um, you're right. I've been in large organizations, and uh, honestly, I think that the privilege of scale is really the ability to learn and improve at speed uh, and, and drive that change. Uh, and um, you mentioned optimism, which I think is a really key lesson. I, I learned it early in my career that, um, you know, if, um, if you told people the world is going to end and followed that with, by saying, yeah, follow my lead, um, that's not a very appealing um, uh, message. And so um, I, I think we have reason to be optimistic, and um, uh, it really is an essential leadership quality, uh, I, I believe. I was actually an MD-PhD happily doing molecular neurobiology, not the obvious course to, to health administration. Uh, and um, on my return to my clinical years, my very first patient was a heart transplant patient. He wasn't in his room. I asked the nurse where he was and said that he was doing pretty well. He was out on the deck getting some air. Little did I know as naive third-year medical student that that meant um, he was smoking through his trach 10 days after a heart transplant. I went back and told my attending, uh, who said, if it really upset me, go talk to the dean. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, the dean told me that, um, hey, you know, you may not appreciate the dynamics at this tender point in your training, but we're a state school in a tobacco state, and if you take on tobacco, we've been warned that um, uh, do so at our own peril. Uh, and um, he put his arm around my shoulder and said, if a student were to get involved, we wouldn't get in the way. Uh, and, um, you know, working with some terrific faculty, our institution became tobacco-free in a year. And it really taught me that everything that attracted me to patient care, everything that I would learn to love about the one-on-one -on -one patient interaction, was, was amplified uh, at, um, at a policy um, level. Uh, and um, when you had scale, 
uh, you can make those desirable changes um, for uh, a cohort or, or a population, uh, not just an individual. So I was encouraged to, to sort of retread, and I retread from molecular biology to health services research, working with Dick Wenzel, one of the founders of the Society of Hospital Epidemiology, uh, but also applied the epidemiologic tools to quality. So in contrast to characterization in terms of structure, process, and outcome, he was using statistics to describe epidemics of poor performance and, if you will, um, the antimicrobials to, to treat problems through intervention, remeasure, and, and, and foster change. And um, I did some work uh, in, in Richmond with, with him, both at um, Virginia Commonwealth University, my uh, alma mater, um, in terms of starting up the health services research program. But um, over at the Richmond VA, we built what um, we would now recognize as a medical home. Uh, and that got the attention of some of the folks up in Washington. So um, ended up going up to um, Washington, D.C., uh, to serve as the Chief Quality and Performance Officer uh, um, under Ken Kaiser and then subsequently had the privilege of leading the research program as the Chief Research and Development Officer for a year on uh, in an interim capacity while simultaneously being the Chief Operating Officer and then, uh, as he mentioned, uh, the Undersecretary or Chief Executive um, uh, in that role. I, I was incredibly unlikely individual to become the Undersecretary for Health. Um, I graduated from high school a couple years after the draft. Um, I'm not a military um, uh, veteran, uh, but um, had the opportunity to engage in some um, uh, really um, un unfortunate but uh, extraordinary activities. Well, it's amazing how you were in, uh, well, I guess in retrospect, the right place at the right time. It could have been the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, but you got tremendous responsibility very quickly because you were ready to taking on where there was real need. Uh, that's one of the uh, pearls for young people playing their career. Uh, but when you got there, well, how bad was it? You know, let me just say that um, as with HCA, uh, which is really very much driven by mission, VA is very much driven by mission. Uh, you and I have worked together in a number of VA activities. Um, I'm sure we'll talk about that more. But uh, as you enter um, at the front door, uh, the immortal words of Lincoln um, really give voice to the purpose of VA to care for those who have borne the battle. And, um, you know, if you run, for those of us who can remember back to the uh, 90s, um, VA was characterized in a couple of movies, born on the 4th of July, Tom Cruise is a spinal cord injured veteran being brutalized in VA, and Article 99, which had the unfortunate tagline, when your hospital is a war zone, you have to fight to save lives. Um, it was a, a bureaucracy, and uh, the truth is, while no one measured, the early measures suggested VA was not serving veterans um, uh, as well as it might, uh, and so there was an um, opportunity to take some of the lessons that we learned in creating a patient-centered medical home, although we didn't have quite that terminology at Richmond, and apply it um, uh, to the VA system more broadly. Sort of blending uh, your experiences at the VA and HCA. You know, you drove a lot of change for the better across the VA, and then you went to HCA. Were they really, really different, or were there similarities? The similarities, they both are large, complex organization. The operating levers um, uh, are very similar. The difference is HCA was, um, when I arrived, a much healthier um, uh, organization. Uh, but let, let's start dissecting it, how we got into um, 
um, you know, improvements on some of the lessons that are uh, generalized to both environments. Uh, so, you know, I think um, uh, Ken Kaiser's brilliance was that he opened uh, VA eligibility to more patients. Well, why is that important? You kind of have enough volume to be really good. And there's a volume outcomes relationship that is um, virtually inescapable. Uh, and um, uh, unfortunately, I didn't get to work with, with Ken all that long. Um, the, the politics in Washington are, are, are pretty tough. Uh, but um, uh, when my, my chance came to, to serve uh, initially uh, as the chief quality officer and then as the chief operating officer, the secretary asked if there were one thing you could do, John, to improve the safety of care, the quality of care, the value of care, what would it be and why? Uh, and my answer was full deployment of an electronic health record. He said, okay, why is that? believed that an electronic health record could serve as both the glue and the fuel. The glue would coordinate care across geography, uh, between care sites, uh, over time, uh, and among members of the care team. And the fuel, to really be able to measure performance, track it, mark improvement. Uh, and so a lesson that generalizes uh, is really the ability to use that as a tool to accelerate improvement in terms of creating both systemness and systems for uh, improvement. And where I think it was really borne out greatly is that um, the veterans served in VA are a very complex population. They're but for the fact that they're veterans. And in contrast to other military service members uh, who, who have retired and are not using the VA, that population is very much akin to Medicare-Medicaid dual eligibles. The Medicare-Medicaid dual eligible non-veterans we know experience um, shorter longevity, poorer function, and higher cost of care. In contrast with the support systems that were put in place in VA, the veterans began to enjoy not only a lower cost of care, a lower acceleration of cost per, per annum compared to Medicare fee-for-service patients, but more importantly, greater function over time, greater function and preservation of function than Medicare fee-for-service beneficiaries, and in fact, greater longevity, uh, which is really, I think, um, a testament to the power of creating systemness. And that was really an important lesson that, um, that, that transfers uh, across all sites, um, particularly in large complex health systems uh, like HCA with nearly 2,000 sites of care today. So said HCI was a much healthier um, organization. The key question is really how we serve patients. Uh, and HCI, our mission is a commitment to the care and improvement of, of human life. Uh, and um, we embrace that mission through our uh, learning health system model. Uh, and um, when meaningful use and high tech came about, we didn't see it as an opportunity to rip and replace uh, one electronic health record with another we saw it as an opportunity to really instantiate the learning health system as the platform uh, for the care of, of patients we have the privilege of serving uh, and for the improvement uh, of the care of every patient, every subsequent patient, uh, and healthcare more broadly. Um, we also support it with a terrific team of, uh, of clinical leaders. I'm privileged to, to, to lead a team of almost 400 people who are really rock stars in a variety of disciplines, including Mike Cuff, who came to us from from Duke as the Vice President of Medical Affairs there, 
Dr. Ravi Chari, an accomplished liver transplant surgeon, uh, Mike Schlosser, uh, uh, Hopkins um, trained uh, neurosurgeon who leads our, our surgical services, Dr. Jim Jurgis, uh, Chief Health Information Officer came to us from Vanderbilt, Edmund Jackson, our Chief Data Scientist, Dr. Jane Engelbright, our Chief Nursing Executive. Really a team of, of individuals who could be deans and department chairs who lead teams of other clinicians and, and data scientists uh, and support our um, uh, clinical work, provide professional leadership, help us build our clinical IT. Uh, and um, uh, conduct um, uh, research uh, and make sense of the complexity of, uh, of healthcare. Can you give me an example of something that you've driven all the way across ATA or almost all the way across? Yeah, I, there, first, um, with the opportunity of meaningful use, we didn't say how do we rip and replace a legacy electronic health record with a slightly prettier albeit legacy electronic health record, we said, how can we create a learning health system? So we envisioned um, our information infrastructure with the EHR, not as the entire ecosystem, but if you will, like your laptop, the Intel inside, the transactional system. We created um, a, a data warehouse that uh, now has um, the trail of um, 10 years of uh, over 30 million encounters um, uh, per year. Uh, and um, you and I have worked together at the uh, National Academy of Medicine, formerly Institute of Medicine, which described a learning health system as one that commits to using um, uh, the data that are in variable byproduct of care uh, to continuously inform and improve all, all subsequent care, uh, improving safety, quality, efficiency, equity, value, uh, and, um, and fostering innovation. And so we built this learning health infrastructure, and uh, it's allowed us to really work in a couple of levels simultaneously. Uh, one is in terms of um, improving care at the bedside, and the other is in terms of really contributing to the understanding of, um, uh, of, of quality and outcomes and advancing practice uh, through large-scale comparative effectiveness studies. Uh, let me take the first example, and um, this is really the example of, of sepsis. In 2013, we made a commitment to adopt the precepts of the Surviving Sepsis uh, Program. And um, that was terrific um, in terms of improvement over five years, from 2013 to, to 2017. Uh, we actually reduced sepsis mortality by um, 39%. Um, but using that learning health system model, we said, wait a minute. You know, the surviving sepsis campaign is somewhat akin to a surviving fire campaign that begins when the flames are shooting out of the building. So what if we could use our electronic health record infrastructure uh, as really a smoke detector, in this case a sepsis detector, and spot sepsis uh, through a sniffer? And so our sepsis prediction and optimization of therapy program was born. Using data from all around HCA, um, demographic data, admission, um, uh, and uh, transfer data, um, uh, laboratories, real-time vital signs, pharmacy, uh, et cetera. Those data actually feed into um, uh, the data warehouse, and they're very low latency, less than 30 seconds by and large. And we scan for the signs of sepsis, and then we can present those back virtually at the bedside to the care teams. Uh, and um, this program really allowed us to um, uh, vastly accelerate uh, our detection of, uh, of sepsis. Uh, in fact, um, 
we, uh, on average, across the entire system, gain six to eight hours of, um, uh, of lead time in diagnosing sepsis in, in hospitalized patients. Um, this is scanning virtually all the medical and surgical patients uh, in, in, in HCA. We use Learning Health System as a platform for discovery, not only to improve care in HCA, but to improve care more generally. One of the most vexing areas is the area of hospital-acquired infections. Uh, still today, roughly one in 20 patients who is hospitalized in any American hospital leaves, if they're fortunate to leave, with something they didn't go in with, a hospital-acquired infection. This is a scourge. And we did a lot of work in HCA to reduce the burden of hospital-acquired infections and made a great deal of progress using approaches used in Scandinavia and, frankly, that we'd used in VA, that is, targeting patients who have repeated healthcare exposures um, for screening cultures for MRSA and, if positive, putting them in isolation. Well, the Institute of Medicine, the CDC, suggested, hey, maybe there's a better approach. Two other strategies in equipoise were doing the same thing, screen, isolate, but decolonize with an antiseptic sponge bath and nasal antibiotic, or skip all the screening. It wastes time. You still may create um, transmission between patients of MRSA. What about going straight to universal decolonization, a sponge bath with chlorhexidine, nasal mupuricin, on all patients that enter the ICO? So over the course of 18 months, we launched a three-arm comparative effectiveness study at 43 hospitals. They were randomized by hospital into these three strategies. And the clear winner was the sponge bath nose drop universal decolonization on top of all known best practices. This approach reduced potentially life-threatening hospital-acquired infections um, with MRSA and other multidrug-resistant organisms by 44%. While that was the headline in the New England Journal, I think there's another feature that deserves equal prominence, and that's that it didn't take one hospital 64 years to acquire these data. It took 43 hospitals 18 months. Since then, a lot of clinicians began to generalize that, hey, if this works in the ICU, won't it work on the floor? Some people began to do the universal decolonization. NIH came to us, um, along with ARC and CDC, and said, well, do a study. So we got 53 hospitals together, 530,000 patients. Uh, and um, truth is, it doesn't work for all patients. However, there's a subset of patients for whom decolonization is remarkably important. In fact, Across those 53 hospitals and 530,000 patients, there were 10% of patients with central lines and devices. For those patients um, who get, on average, about 60% of all of the infections, um, the universal decolonization protocol, again, reduces potentially life-threatening bloodstream infections with drug-resistant organisms by roughly one-third. And again, it didn't take one hospital over 90 years to acquire the data. It took 53 hospitals 21 months. We're now wrapping up a study to actually swap out the nasal antibiotic with an antiseptic, iodophore, um, because while there's a real-world epidemic of hospital-acquired infections, we take um, a great heed to the CDC's admonition that multi-drug-resistant organisms present five chilling words, an existential threat to mankind. Um, if we can get the same effect without using a nasal antibiotic, all the better. This will be a 123 hospital, uh, roughly six to 800,000 patient study, uh, and we hope to have that answer soon.
what I think is important about that is, um, is that it provides a window into HCA. Uh, and uh, I think that window um, is best articulated by one of our founders, Tommy Frist, Jr. Uh, when asking one of our physicians, why is this research important, um, the physician looked back at Dr. Frist and said, because if we do this, we change care in HCA. And Dr. Frist is a pretty quiet man. He looked back and his face said it all, imploring, finish that thought. And this young physician smiled and said, I get it, if we change care in HCA, we change care everywhere. Uh, and um, that's the privilege of scale, the ability to learn and improve at speed uh, and uh, really lift the mission to care and improvement of human life. Did you have an issue with getting late adopters who didn't really want to do it to do it? Uh, was that an issue, and how did you deal with it? Yeah, well, success breeds success. And, um, you know, I, I mentioned that between 2013 and 2017, we got a 39% improvement. 2018 over 2017, we got 23% year-over-year improvement on, in, in, in sepsis with six to eight hours earlier lead time. And, you know, for every hour of, um, uh, of earlier diagnosis, uh, you improve survival by up to 8%. And so success breeding success was a great demonstration to folks who might have been skeptical uh, that this saves lives. And, in fact, between 2013 and 2018, uh, we have a, a, a paper we just submitted that this leads to um, saving almost 8,000 lives. And um, when our, our clinicians, uh, even those who might have been skeptical at the outset, can see that this saves lives, that this detects patients is better than 100% sensitivity, that is, it's finding patients they didn't see, and better than 50% more specific, so they're not focusing on patients who, in fact, don't go on to fulminant sepsis, um, it's pretty compelling. So how did you and Ken Kaiser go about addressing the challenges on such an enormous scale? Can you give an example of something that you spread systematically that led to measurable improvement? I think one of the lessons in VA that translates not only to HCA but um, um, more broadly to healthcare, and um, frankly has come up this past week uh, as I've had the privilege of participating at HHS's uh, Quality Summit, is really having a framework for improvement and a framework for, for measurement. In VA, we use a number of composite measures for preventive care, for chronic disease, for palliative care. And these were composites where one could articulate globally to perhaps more lay audiences. Um, you could also dissect those measures into the more granular components that would have the credibility to clinicians and the capacity to drive change. So, for example, under a prevention measure, uh, it had uh, immunization, uh, cancer screening, and substance use screening and counseling uh, as well. And under those three buckets of immunization, flu, and pneumonia um, vaccination, uh, under um, cancer screening, um, uh, breast uh, and colon, and at the time, uh, prostate, uh, and under substance use, alcohol, tobacco, uh, and, and other substances. Uh, and I think there's a role for these sorts of nested measures in terms of being able to articulate momentum in a direction at a certain sort of aggregate level, but also having the level of detail that's necessary in clinical practice. The other dimension is, is, is a framework. And um, uh, in VA at that time, it preceded the Institute of Medicine's uh, quality chasm report, but we bucketed our work into quality and access, satisfaction, functional status, community health, and, of course, uh, cost-effectiveness. Uh, and, in fact, my deal with the Office of Management and Budget was that if we didn't improve the good stuff relative to cost, 
fire me. Uh, but the organization actually, against that backdrop of challenge in the 90s, uh, really went on to be characterized by 50 articles that um, uh, really shared a, a sort of almost common uh, name, the best care anywhere. Uh, and um, the real privilege was then to, to realize that these skills, these approaches would generalize. And as we came to HCA, after the Quality Chasm Report, um, looking at the buckets of safety, timeliness, equity, efficiency, effectiveness, and characteristic of being patient-centered uh, were um, tremendously important uh, and transferable, uh, as were the lessons of the importance of an electronic health record, measurement, uh, and change. So how did you think about the trade-off between local autonomy and the need for standardization? The trade-off between local autonomy and the need for standardization is a question we think about intensely in HCA. Uh, we believe that our biggest asset is the distributed intellectual capital, the innovation that occurs every day, every moment at, at the front lines. Uh, and uh, we want to make sure uh, that we encourage that. We have a critical strategic decision when something centralized. That is, that the efficiency and effectiveness gains must be substantially greater than if the activity remained a distributed function. That said, much of healthcare today is so incredibly complex, be it administrative, regulatory, or clinical, that we can't possibly be at our best, be efficient, be excellent in parallel play. And so to me, the attraction of a system like HCA Healthcare is really the ability to have both hands. And as I said, we live by this mantra that the privilege of scale is not being big. The privilege of scale is the ability to learn and improve uh, at its speed. The goal for our clinical services team, the team that I lead, is really to find the best of HCI and make it a standard for HCI. And if we can't find the best internally, to find the best in the world and make it the standard. And if that's not known, our goal is then to use the scale, this learning health system platform as we've done a number of major studies, the Reduced MRSA study, for example, the Abate study, and the forthcoming Swap Health study, to really define what is the world's best. And, oh, by the way, after we do all that, we begin again. Uh, and so uh, it's really the opportunity to, to be part of um, a learning health system. Uh, so that's why it's fun to be at an organization that has the scale to learn at speed. Uh, and um, to, to share that there are lessons that generalize uh, across not just large organizations, uh, but all organizations. I know that your management has moved uh, from following pure financial numbers to following quality metrics, including the progress of efforts like this. Uh, so I, it is impressive how you guys have gone from just being a company that manages, you know, a holding company, making sure everyone's managing correctly, to really trying to spread things across the system. Thanks so much, Tom, uh, and to the Catalyst team for the opportunity to be with you today.